0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Frick Madison. The Frick Collection has moved temporarily from its Gilded Age mansion to Marcel Breuer's 1960s building created for the Whitney Museum. So what happens when the old masters meet brutalism? We talked to Xavier Salomon of The Frick about this remarkable change of setting for one of the world's great collections. Later, we talked to Vincent Noss about his new book following an old master forgery scandal involving some of the greatest artists and the most august institutions. And for this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Collier Shaw talks about the photographer August Sander. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read The Art Newspaper anywhere, anytime, with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for The Art Newspaper and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, on the 18th of March, the Frick Collection will launch Frick Madison, its temporary new home on Madison Avenue in New York. Until now, the collection of old master paintings and sculptures and decorative arts has been housed in the Gilded Age mansion on Central Park, bequeathed to the public by the industrialist Henry Clay Frick when he died in 1919, and has more than doubled in size since then. The mansion is now closed for renovation and expansion to accommodate the collection and special exhibitions, so the collection has moved a few blocks but into an entirely different architectural realm. Frick Madison is housed in the Bauhaus architect Marcel Breuer's Brutalist masterpiece originally built for the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1966 and recently the home of the Met Breuer. So how do Bellini and Titian, Van Dyck, Rembrandt and Vermeer, Fragonard and Gainsborough look in these alien surroundings? I spoke to the Frick's Deputy Director and Chief Curator, Xavier Salomon, who's overseen the concept and installation, to find out. Xavier, I wonder if you could cast your mind back to the moment that you first knew you were going to get the Breuer building for the Frick's collection, and tell us what you felt at that moment. It was a combination
1: of relief and absolute terror, I think. Um, You know, relief because, you know, the plan was to really put the entire collection in storage, be closed for a couple of years while we were renovating the building at the Frick and then reopen. So the idea that we had a place where we could display the arts was a huge sense of relief. And we had talked to a number of museums about getting a few rooms or a floor. And so the idea of having an entire building where we could move the offices and the entire collection was absolutely exciting, but terrifying because, You know, imagine moving the Wallace Collection to Barbican or the Jacques Mandry to the Saint-Pompidou. I mean, it's just the idea of, you know, taking something out of its natural context, let's say, as we as we see it, and bring it into something that's totally alien. So as soon as we made that decision, there was a lot of thinking and a lot of backwards and forwards about what to do with the building.
0: Did you try out in your minds and on paper all sorts of different alternatives? In other words, there wasn't just a preconceived idea, we're going to do it in the way that you've ended up doing it? No, absolutely. And the first phase was a lot
1: of thinking, uh, a lot of backwards and forwards on various ideas. You know, you have a blank canvas and the blank canvas is exciting, but at the same time, it's also, as I say, terrifying because you have so many ways you could go. And I still think there are other solutions we could have used. I mean, what we did is by no means the the only option. Um, And I'm sure, you know, people will like it, people will criticize it, people will think it could have been done a different way. But out of all the choices, together with my team, we thought this was the most uh, logical one for us and the one we wanted to pursue and the one we thought was most interesting. But we definitely did play with all sorts of options. And at the beginning, we didn't really exclude anything. I mean, we started with even the idea of recreating the rooms in a building like the Breuer. So just sort of replicating the rooms or the spirit of the rooms. And then of course we went in the opposite direction and that's sort of where we got to but also the the idea of how you redivide a collection like that you know if you're not following the room shapes what do you do you know do you do it by themes do you do it by date do you do it by collecting history so there were, there were many many options and and I still think some of them would have been interesting. But I think what we chose in the end was the most fitting one, I think, and the one that excited us the most.
0: I mean, the key thing is that the Breuer building is unyielding to a certain degree, isn't it? It's an insistent space. I mean, when you look at these beautiful pictures that have started to emerge, in the, for instance, in the New York Times article, you know, that gridded ceiling, the wooden floor and the stone floor, the character of the building is something you can't fight, Right. No, you have to embrace it. And, you know, you have to think that this is a building that was
1: designed to contain works of art, but it was designed to contain works of art that were conceived for a museum like that. And our collection is not. I always tell people there isn't a single object at the Frick that was created with the idea that it would go into a museum. You know, they're all things that are made for houses, for, for churches, for a number of different buildings and patrons, but without any of them, I think, at any point between you know the, the, the 13th century and the, the late 19th century, thinking that these things were, were going to end up in a museum. Well, Breuer created his building as an architect for contemporary art in the 1960s, so white walls, spaces that are there to accommodate the art of the 1960s and 50s and, and beyond. So we, we had to play with that and we had to translate the Breuer building in a version that is more sympathetic to Old Masters, but also readapt our collection to a more not quite contemporary, but a more modern space. I mean, the Breuer is not a contemporary building. It's a it's a historic building the same way that the Frick Mansion is a historic building.
0: But it's really interesting that isn't it that the idea of the historic buildings because of course there will be some people who will say well these works were meant to be seen in the kind of space that the frick mansion is but of course that too is a historicized space isn't it yeah
1: absolutely i mean in some cases you know think of gainsborough's portraits i mean they're made for the london homes or the country houses of a number of aristocrats in in england you know, something like the Frick is definitely more sympathetic to those sort of pictures. You know, the dining room at the Frick is closer to, I mean, not in size, but I don't know, a space at Chatsworth or something like that. Uh, obviously the Broy building is totally different from that. You know, some of the sculptures, as I say, were made for churches. I mean, things were made for very different contexts. And, and by the time you bring them to a museum, be it the Frick in the mansion or be it the Broyer, you are just interpreting those objects in a very different way. So how do we do that in a way that is respectful to the objects? but it's also respectful to the building. We started with the idea that as much as people love to hate the Breuer building in, in New York, it is a masterpiece of architecture. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating building and one that deserves our respect and appreciation of what it can do. And I have to say, working with it in the last three years, my appreciation for it has, has gone up. I mean, I, I knew it when it was the Whitney. I knew it when it was the Met Breuer. And, you know, I saw countless exhibitions there. I never really thought of the building because I never really thought one day I would have to take care of that building and and deal with it. Uh, But once you start analyzing the space, what Breuer does with the compression of space, sort of releasing and compressing as you go through the staircase and up into different spaces, keeping the floors fairly open architecturally, the materials he uses, all of that is is fascinating. And so we we also looked at a lot of other museums from that period, you know, modern museums that have old master collections and trying to get ideas from other, other institutions
0: as well. Let's talk about the way that you've done it, because one of the things that really comes across from the literature, from the guide, for instance, on Bloomberg Connects and from the small guide that you produced as well, is that there's a tremendous sense of liberation in all this, because you can actually put things together that you've not been able to, in particular, particular bodies of work together that you just simply cannot do in the Frick Mansion.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the Frick Mansion is not as stuck in time as people think. I mean, there is always this idea that, you know, nothing has ever changed at the Frick. You know, we're not a museum like the Stuart Gardner where they really cannot move things around. Know we're more like the Wallace where things have moved around over and over again, and you know, it's very different now from how it was at the times of at the times of Wallace. Um, so we've moved things around, but you have certain constraints to do with the space, to do with the way things fit together. So, you know, it's a traditional hang in many ways. After the initial, as I say, terrifying sort of moment of of realizing we have to deal with this building, how do we do it? Then there was this moment of absolute excitement of, you know, we have no rules in a way. I mean, we we have this blank canvas, what do we do with it? So there was a lot of thinking about what other people had done, thinking about what we liked, what we didn't like about other museums or other installations all over the world, really. So there was a fair amount of traveling and thinking with the curatorial team about different places. Um, Each one of us came with backgrounds of ideas of things we liked, uh, and, and so we started discussing that. I mean, I had some visions in my head that were there from the very beginning. And I have to say that I'm very happy to say that some of those visions did take life, you know, three years later, they've come to life. And they are pretty much what I was imagining. So I'm very happy that there was this, this sense of what we could do in certain areas. And so starting from that, and marrying the collection to the building, you know, one of the beginning points was that we can't treat this as a normal museum. So we cannot pretend it's any other building and just have a normal hang, like you would have at the National Gallery or Tate. So how do we address that and how do we do something that we couldn't do at the house but we can only do at the broyer so the idea of sort of being very spartan and minimal in the in the hang was something that began at the very beginning really We, we started thinking about that very very early on and there was this really key moment with the three curators who were working on the project at the time. We started as a group of four. We are now two, the other two have moved on, but they're still somewhat involved. We did this really important trip. We went to Texas and we went to the Kimball to, to see Louis Kahn, which I knew very well, but not all my colleagues had been. And we went to Marfa. And I thought Marfa to me was, having been there before, was a perfect example of how you can see works of art by themselves in a large space in a more modern way, which we don't usually associate with old masters. So that was one of the big sparks and the drive to Marfa from Dallas became this sort of mythical time where we were really like discussing things, the four of us stuck in a car together, driving and, and sketching things and, and talking about it nonstop for a long weekend. So that was really a, a kind of retreat where the whole idea sort of began to take shape and form. And of course, over the years, then a lot of things were changed
0: and, and developed. So tell me about some of the groupings then. So one of the things that that is really important, it seems to me, and there's this sort of emblematic moment when you first enter the galleries, which is a single sculpture on its own, which says sculptures getting real prominence here. So tell us about that.
1: So I think one of the uh, things that always frustrates me about the Frick is people think of the Frick as a paintings collection. You know, I worked for years at Dalish Picture Gallery, which is a paintings gallery. I mean, there's nothing else. I mean, there is some furniture, there's the occasional piece of sculpture, but it's paintings. The Frick is not that. I mean, the Frick is a house, which means there are there are carpets and porcelain vases and, and pieces of furniture and bronze sculpture and a number of other things. And those become, by virtue of the fact you're visiting a house, the most invisible things. People look at furniture as furniture, as something utilitarian, which is there, and can be ignored because you're looking at the Vermeer above it, or the the Titian. And I wanted to break that down and make people understand that the Frick is actually made out of masterpieces in different fields. And one of the great things about the Frick is the quality of everything, the furniture, the, the carpets, the porcelain, and so on. So we, we knew from the beginning, we wanted to break that down a little bit. You know, when you arrive at the Broyer on each floor in the building, you come out of the staircase or the elevator and you're usually confronted with a long blank wall. You never quite know where you're going. So we wanted to also break that down a little bit and we wanted something to welcome you on each floor. And we started with the idea obviously of a painting, but then it very quickly, verged onto sculpture because you know they have something three-dimensional from another time welcoming you almost like another person that welcomes you to each floor and so on the second floor we have a single sculpture on the other floors the, the third and fourth we have a group of three sculptures on each one and they're sort of the people of that geographical area or that country or that, or, that, or that period that sort of welcome you in a way to each floor and so that was an idea that we thought was very powerful and has worked very well And then the groupings are really arranged by chronology and and geography, more or less, but with some exceptions. So we do have some thematic rooms, which are mostly divided by material. You know, our collection is a European collection, let's say 1200 to the late 1800s, but we do have occasional exceptions. So we do have two incredible Indian carpets. We have some Chinese porcelain. Uh, And those were the things that we wanted to highlight. But of course, we couldn't create a China or India geographical area because we don't have enough material. So, you know, we played Europe and Asia, in our case, off. And we wanted to also show interactions between the two continents, ways in which they were looking at each other. And, you know, it, it, it has worked quite well in terms of thinking about it as a progression of rooms where each room is in some way related to the room that comes after and always before
0: and of course the, there's these lovely now united groups of fragonars for instance and you're showing eight van dykes and you're showing seven games for us all together in a way that you couldn't in the original building yeah
1: you know it, it is interesting to focus on the strengths of the collection somehow even the weaknesses and i you know obviously i don't want to focus too much on the weaknesses <laughs> but you know we're not an encyclopedic museum so we're not a museum where we represent western art as a museum like the National Gallery, the Metropolitan Museum would, Um, we just show what Frick was interested in and acquired and what the museum has subsequently acquired following in his footsteps. So you know, if I ask people who is the artist who's best represented at the Frick, most people would find it actually quite hard to reply. And most people don't realize that we have eight portraits by Van Dyck, that's the top. It's then followed by seven portraits by Gainsborough which in a way it's interesting in itself because it gives you a sense very immediately about the fact that Frick was interested in grand portraiture from the Western tradition. So those were the things we wanted to group together. Of course, you know we're lucky we have three Vermeers. And so the idea of just having a room with the three Vermeers, we've never really done that. I mean, they've been shown in different spaces at the house, sometimes together, but usually in rooms with other things. So the idea of isolating them and and seeing them under a different light and in a very different space was something that was, very very important to us um, again from the beginning. Um, So there are some rooms that are just by artists others are more by periods and by by school let's say. I'm sure that to some people it may seem a little boring and a bit old-fashioned but actually it's the only way in which we haven't seen our collection at all. No one has ever been able to see these things together in the mansion. So we thought that out of all the options that in a way was the most interesting and the one that reveals a lot about the museum. So for example on the Second floor where we focus on northern art, north of the Alps, so basically Germany, Flanders, Holland, the Netherlands. Um, we don't have a single three-dimensional object, and we had to slightly cheat in terms of what welcomes you because what welcomes you is a French sculpture, which I mean it is north of the Alps, but it's you know we we don't have a single Dutch or Flemish three-dimensional object, piece of furniture or piece of decorative art. Well, as you go up, you know most of the sculptures are on the Italian floor, most of the decorative arts are on the French floor. The French and British floor, again, we have many sculptures and, and furniture from, from France. We don't have a single one from Britain. We don't have any British sculpture. We don't have any British furniture. So that I think becomes very apparent if you start noticing the absences as much as the, as the presences. But then you realize that where there are presences, the strength is incredible. I mean, the quality for each of those rooms is, is, is remarkable. And that is a real testament to Frick as a collector and what he was interested in.
0: So you've been able to set up these really interesting encounters using the building, haven't you? And there's this one particular image, which has really grabbed me from the pictures, which is the Bellini, arguably your most famous painting, alongside one of Breuer's trapezoid windows. And it looks an astonishing connection.
1: Yeah, and that was one of the starting points, actually. So when we were planning to marry the building with the collection, one of the first things that came to my mind was, of course, you know, the windows in the Broy building are very iconic, you know, they're one of the main characteristics of the building inside. So how do we marry the windows with works of art? And so what became apparent to me immediately was the idea that, that match needed to be a sort of one-to-one match between the greatest works in the collection and the greatest features of the building. I mean, I I really just had this image from the beginning, a window, a Breuer window, the Bellini, a bench, nothing else. So creating a secular 1960s New York chapel, you know, like the Rothko chapel in, in Houston, you know, you're surrounded by works of art. In this case, you have one incredibly powerful work of art. It so works out that St. Francis, you know, the light is coming in and it looks like it's coming in from the window and he's looking out of the window. I mean, the whole thing works very, very well. The same way with the fourth floor, the grandest window of all is paired with the fragoner Room. And that, you know, again, the the fragoner Room was a room that was designed to be in a pavilion with gardens all around and windows. And so having this inside, outside, you know, unfortunately, we don't look out onto a garden. We don't look out onto Central Park. But, you know, you have this relationship between interior and exterior in a way that works very well with a large window. So those were points where we started and then sort of constructed
0: everything else almost around it. I'm intrigued by something that you said in the New York Times article, which speaks to how far you can go with a textbook modernist space in the sense that you say that hanging old masters on white is the kiss of death so there were balances you had to strike between a very very stark contemporary vision or modern vision alongside what does best for the paintings right
1: yeah and it's I can't really explain why but you know whenever you hang old masters on on a purely white wall the sort of white cube model let's say it really doesn't work. And I think, you know, partly because none of those works were ever designed to be on a blank white wall, you know, modern and contemporary art is, you know, this idea of the white wall, the white gallery is something that most artists have in their heads these days as they're producing works for exhibitions and for museums. You know, Bellini was not thinking about that. I mean, even if the wall was light, it was probably some sort of cream color or gray color, you know, I've, I haven't seen any sort of bright white walls in any old building in Europe. So, You know, we we did play with the idea early on of what can we do with the white, and then we decided that that was really not an option for us. But we focused on a color that would work with the building and with the works, which of course for us is gray, and working on different shades of gray. So throughout the building, you will encounter different grays that work very well with the art and with the building. So the idea of not introducing any colour, no you know, red galleries or blue galleries was something that again was there from, from the beginning. So again, very spartan, very clean, very minimal. But what ends up popping is the art. I mean, you immediately focus on the art. And one of the interesting things that we hadn't thought about is that what ends up having a huge value and a huge importance in the Broy building are the frames, the gold frames which in a house like the Frick, they tend to disappear with the velvets on the walls and the, the sort of framing of the rooms and the stucco work. You know, you don't really notice it. But there in the sort of brutalist building, the frame really becomes a frame. It's sort of, it's the boundary between the modern space you're inhabiting and the work of art. And many people have commented on it already, seeing the galleries, that the frame suddenly become a very different thing.
0: The, the intriguing thing about, the way that you're doing this is it is is it immediately becomes symbolic of a very important debate it seems to me that's going on right now about seeing history through the present or seeing history through modern eyes and the idea of airbrushing history etc that's going on lots of reaction reviews saying that you should not reinvestigate the past you should leave it alone etc etc I wonder to what extent have you seen that as part of this project? Because obviously in the galleries themselves, it's really clean. But for instance, there's this guide in which there are some very, what we would call new art history ideas expressed about the paintings. And do you feel in a way that you are contending with a kind of view of history and a a take on history in this project?
1: I mean, everyone does. I mean, it's whenever you're talking about history, you are interpreting history, I mean, we're living through the present, anything that's in the past already, if it happened a day ago, you can interpret it in a number of different ways. I firmly believe that the past is important. And it's important, I think, in light of the present and the future. Um, You know, learning our lessons from the past, I I would imagine, I mean, at least I personally believe that is, is an important aspect of being a human being. And if we don't do that, then, you know, that's when human beings make mistakes over and over again, which is the case often. The traveling back in time in the past is a painful experience. And I think we need to just acknowledge that and confront that. We can't just imagine a past where everything was fine and wonderful and romantic. And, you know, didn't people in the middle ages live so happily? And, you know, it was so much better than now. I mean, that is just a ridiculous way to look at it. And looking at art in that way as well, you know, I, I really hate it when art becomes a form of escapism of like, oh, let's look at this pretty Bellini because I hate the world I'm living in right now. You know, that's not the point at all. And, you know, those paintings are there to teach us lessons and for us to understand where we come from. And where we come from, let's face it, is a very dark and, and problematic world and world that we created as human beings. So, you know, going back in time is going back through wars, going back through injustices of a number of different ways. And I think thinking about works of art in a broader way is important that way. And I don't think we can just dismiss works of art from the past as something that's irrelevant because it's from the past. It is very relevant to us. And... You know, many artists themselves had problematic lives where, you know, people that I'm not sure any of us would like to spend the weekend with. Many of the messages in these works of art is not particularly great. We have a grand gallery of British portraiture at the Breuer. You know, we're surrounded by 15 portraits of white people, white rich people. Why? You know, let, let's think about that. And I don't think we can just hide and say, oh, this is irrelevant, it should be destroyed, we shouldn't look at it. We need to, and we need to feel that uncomfortable pain. I mean, I live in New York City, which is a you know, multicultural, very diverse city, and there I am surrounded by white faces in my museum. How do I explain that? And I think it's a question of explaining it and understanding it. We cannot rewrite history, and I don't think it's very useful to spend time condemning history and trying to put in a cupboard everything we don't like about the past. We need to just open the cupboard open, understand what it is that we don't like, and what it is that we can do to change that. And I think the times right now, I hope, are going to be a time of change for the future where people are reckoning that there have been a lot of things that we didn't think about or that we thought were okay when they're really not okay. And, and learning from that and learning from the past, I think, is absolutely fundamental. So, you know, even a painting like Vermeer, for example, to give you a very brief example, you know, you look at a Vermeer and you think, oh, isn't this pretty? It's a guy and a girl and they're talking and they're drinking a glass of wine. But then, you know, you learn more about it. And the guy's wearing a hat made out of beaver pelt, which came from Canada. And the killing of beavers is something that ended up kind of compromising, obviously, the indigenous populations of Canada who were, exterminated because of the Western market for things like beaver pelt and wood and a number of other things. And you know, Vermeer wasn't painting a felt hat because of that, but Vermeer was living in a world where this was happening. And I think it's very reductive to just think of Vermeer as a pretty artist who's just painting lovely little scenes that we can look at when we just had a fight with our partner and things at work are going badly and we just need a distraction. I think it's good to learn from these things and, and, and broaden our horizons. And so, for example, the exchanges between East and West, as painful as those are and have been in the past, is something that we wanted to explore at the Frick because we have porcelain that was made in China for a European market and Europeans copying porcelain made in China. You know, how was that working? How was that producing what we live with today? And the fact that we all eat with dishes and mugs and drink tea in, in porcelain today and think, it, you know, it's just totally
0: normal is due to those exchanges three, four, five hundred years ago. So lastly, Xavier, I wanted to ask what you're going to take back with you from this experience at the Breuer. Will we see a very different looking Frick mansion?
1: Yes and no. We will see a different mansion in the sense that we're working on opening more of the mansion to the public. The second floor, it was always the intention of opening it to the public from when we opened in 1935, but for a number of reasons, it was used as offices and never really opened. So there will be, almost 10 more galleries upstairs. So that will be different. And how we're gonna display art there, it's still gonna be within the language of the mansion of the Frick, but it will be different. Downstairs, the intention is to keep everything as much as it, as it used to be, the, you know the plan is not to change any of that dramatically. But what I'm hoping is that people will look at things in a different way. The barber angel that is one of the first thing you encounter on the second floor, well, the very first thing, I've already had members of staff asking me, was that in the museum? I've never seen that. Where was it? And, you know, that was in the garden court at the Frick, where people have been sitting and and talking and and looking at things for the last, you know, 85 years. And people don't notice it, it becomes invisible. So what I'm hoping to bring is people who had the fortune of seeing the collection at the Breuer at at Frick Madison will be able to then have a new view on some of the objects and see them under a different light when they go back into the mansion. For us curators, I think it's the lesson of taking everything out of its context, starting from scratch, rethinking things. So for example, we divided, and this is a very straightforward example, the Italian gold ground paintings from the French enamels, which at the Frick in the mansion are all in one room together. And it looks lovely but in fact it doesn't really do any favors to either of those groups and so what we're thinking of doing is now post Breuer to bring the gold grounds upstairs in a room by themselves and actually recreate the enamels room as it was in Frick's day just for enamels so those are things that we're, we're shifting I mean another thing is you know we have a vitrine of clocks uh, at the Broyer, which looks unbelievably beautiful and we have a great collection of clocks and watches which was given to us in 1999 by a collector and we never really put it on view in a proper way. So how to do that? You know, we, we, we're thinking of ways, you know, we may not necessarily create a clock room, but there may be a way in which we can display those in a better way. And now literally, you know, we just started opening the museum last week. So it's very early days, but we're already beginning to think about the move back. And it's, it's been quite funny because the minute we started opening and the staff started coming in, the discussion is, how do we move back? What do we do? And so it's something to look forward to in the next couple of years, but it will be a lot of thinking now in terms of what we've learned from Roya, how we can improve things at the mansion, and how this experience has informed us as curators, but also hopefully the public.
0: Xavier, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Frick Madison opens on the 18th of March. You can discover the excellent Bloomberg Connects guide that I mentioned by downloading the Bloomberg Connects app from the App Store. And you can read more about the Frick and Frick Madison at theartnewspaper.com or on the Art Newspaper app. And if you haven't already, do go to Frick.org and check out Cocktails with a Curator, where Xavier and other Frick curators talk about works in the collection with an accompanying drink. In a moment, I talk to Vincent Nos about his new book, La Faire Ruffini, and later Collier Shaw talks about the great August Sander. But first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The Tower of the Katubia Mosque, the only painting done by Winston Churchill during the Second World War, which he gave to the US President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1943, sold for a record £7 million or £8.2 million with fees at Christie's Modern British Art evening sale this week. Adding further American gloss to the provenance, it was sold by the Jolie family collection, in other words, the actress Angelina Jolie. Churchill painted the oil on canvas in Marrakesh following the Casablanca Conference in January 1943 and gave it to as a memento, a gesture as political as it was personal. As Anna Brady writes, the work has stayed in the US ever since and was given to Jolie by her ex-partner Brad Pitt. The previous record for a work by Churchill stood at £1.7 million. The UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced £408 million in extra funding for Britain's beleaguered culture sector in his budget statement this week. As Gareth Harris writes, more than £300 million will be added to the £1.57 billion Culture Recovery Fund, while National museums will receive 90 million in emergency funding to help keep them afloat until they're permitted to reopen on the 17th of May. Community cultural projects will get 18.8 million. And finally, Alan Bowness, the director of the Tate Gallery between 1980 and 1988, and the man who established the Turner Prize and Tate Liverpool has died aged 93. Bowness also laid the foundations for Tate St Ives, which opened after his retirement. He was also the director of the Henry Moore Foundation, and having married in 1957 Sarah Hepworth Nicholson, the daughter of Barbara Hepworth and Ben Nicholson, he became the principal executor of Barbara Hepworth's estate on her death in 1975. Numerous masterpieces were acquired during his tenure at the Tate, including Andy Warhol's Marilyn Diptych and David Hockney's A Bigger Splash. Go to theartnewspaper.com to read Richard Calver Caressy's obituary and you can find all these stories and much more there and on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Through the 12th of March, Christie's New York will host a series of six live and online auctions dedicated to the definers of contemporary art. Discover striking works from leading post-war and contemporary artists such as Kenneth Noland, Matthew Wong, Yayo Kusama, Cause, Wallace Ting and Keith Haring. Make history with Beeple's Every Days, the first 5,000 days, the first ever purely digital artwork or NFT to be sold at a traditional auction house, and engage with a specific sale dedicated to the Brooklyn-based artist Abudia, whose style echoes Jean-Michel Basquiat. These auctions offer something for those just beginning their collecting journeys and for seasoned collectors alike. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Vincent Noss, a France correspondent for the Art Newspaper, has written a new book about a forgery scandal that's affected top museums, auction houses and galleries dealing in old masters, an investigation that's prompted numerous articles for the Art Newspaper. The book's called The Ruffini Affair, and I spoke to Vincent about it. Vincent, we're talking about your book, which is called The Ruffini Affair. Who is Ruffini?
2: Giuliano Ruffini is a French citizen who lives in northern Italy, and his family emigrated in France when he was uh, young. He claims to be a farmer, a retired farmer, living on a meagre pension. And uh, actually, he's mostly an art dealer, and he's been selling paintings for 30 or 40 years now, maybe by Hundreds of them,
0: right? And th- and they're old masters, right? So does he deal exclusively in old masters?
2: Uh, yes, that's yeah, that's one characteristic. He, he has always been selling old masters, Flemish paintings for a while. You know these folkloric sceneries in the countryside, in the manner of Bruegel and all this circle. Then he turned to uh, masters from the Renaissance and 16th, 17th, sometimes 18th century, mostly on copper, stone, wood, and sometimes on linen too.
0: The key thing is that you began investigating him some years ago and you've continued to investigate and kept on uncovering these inconsistencies in the reports of what these objects are. Can you say something about your investigation?
2: Julien Ruffini is not someone who is really well-known on the market. And uh, actually, a lot of professionals didn't even know his name or, you know, who he wa- was and uh, what what he was doing. I started investigating him because he has been using, for a long time, go-betweens he claims or they claim it was for fiscal reasons but you know maybe there were more deeper motives for that the problem that he had is he has had difficulties with them on the share of benefits and uh, they started to fight and uh, at one point one of the go between decided to Uh, take contact with me and tell me what was going on and at that point he was suspecting Ruffini to sell forgeries and uh, by chance a few months later another go between uh, another former accomplice of Ruffini came and contacted me too not knowing that I've had already this first contact He told me the same story on a different period. And that was before the police investigation started. And I've been working on this for uh, almost one year and trying to check the facts, the documents, the testimonies I had. Then the judge decided to seize a Venice uh, with a veil which belongs to the Prince of Liechtenstein in an exhibition in the south of France. And then the story became public. And that's when I published my first article in the art newspaper about the case.
0: Yeah, that was the story that really unlocked all this, wasn't it? So it was a Cranach painting. And, you know, it was, as you say, it's in this major royal collection. So tell us a bit more about it.
2: Well, in this case, it was denounced by these former associates of Ruffini as a fake, one of the forgeries. And the first doubt you could have is that uh, the painting had a very short provenance. It was bought by the Prince of Liechtenstein to Konrad Bernheimer, was at the time a major dealer, he was the owner of Konnagi Gallery at the time and he claimed that it came from a Belgian family who had owned it since the middle of the 19th century and the Prince of Liechtenstein accepted this provenance and it was published uh, as so in uh, the catalogue. The painting was bought for quite a sum, uh, seven million euros, three years before. And they had three years to work on the provenance, on the history of the painting, because you know, it's normally what you do when you have a, a great discovery of such a master of the German Renaissance, you start to understand where the painting is coming from. And they didn't do their homework, obviously, because in two weeks, I contacted someone who was involved in the sale of the painting. And uh, I told him, well, no one knows who this Belgian family is, can you tell me more? And I, you know, I can protect their name if it's necessary, but uh, I'd like to make a research on on the history of 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 the painting, of the panel. And he said, "Well, I invented that. It doesn't exist." So I said, well, you why did you do that?" And he said, "Because uh, as you know, Belgium is uh, the rulings on the import and exports of paintings is much relaxed than in France, Italy, or Spain. And uh, it was uh, the easiest way to have the panel transferred to London. So we chose Brussels as a starting point. And then I just said, ah, it's coming from a Belgian family since the middle of the 19th century. And I came back to Johann Kraftner, who is the curator of the Prince of Liechtenstein and to Konrad Bernheimer. And I told them, well, this Belgian family does not exist. This is a, a, a fairy tale. And Krafner had this very strange reply. He said, we are not the police. We are not making investigations on the provenance like this. I said, well, it's the work of an art historian to do this. And this is a matter which I, I will find during these five years of investigation, which none of the paintings that Ruffini sold, absolutely none, has a sound history. So. You know, you you would think that dealers, experts, curators who admitted that they could be masterworks for old masters would have a doubt, you know, saying, well, there's no provenance there. This is very strange. This guy is selling paintings after paintings without any provenance. But apparently it was not their problem. They didn't think it was a problem.
0: Well, this is the really interesting thing and it's it's at the heart of your book isn't it this idea that so much of the claims of authenticity for these works was based upon connoisseurship so for instance the Cranach had been authenticated as a Cranach by leading experts in Cranach, who have subsequently revised their opinions given the scientific evidence and that's at the crux of the book isn't it because you, as you say if the provenances were very doubtful and therefore it was the view of certain experts that gave the legitimacy to these works and and and, and that's problematic when it's flying in the face of, of other evidence, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think the main problem which you, you can uh, learn from this book is the fact that you have art historians who are only working on the fascination of image. So they have an examination of the work when they don't judge it on a photographic, which happens also, which is also awful, I think. And they have a look at the work for one hour, maybe two hours, and they say, okay, it's by such and such a great master. They are not looking at the material object for instance in the case of the cranach as well as in other cases you have an old panel and a new painting and the paint is in very good condition but the panel is very old so this is some sort of contradiction and they don't even look at it i mean they don't they don't it's not that they don't mind i mean they they don't even notice it although they have the panel in their hands they don't look at the object They don't look at the history. They don't push further examination like uh, macro photography, the analysis of the pigments, uh, the varnish, and so on and so on. And just by looking at it, they decide that it can be the work of a great master. And as you know, that was how art history worked a century ago with Berenson and all these great connoisseurs and uh, we know that maybe half of the paintings they admitted as being by great masters were not by these masters. Some were copies, some were fakes. And um, I think there are too many experts now, too many specialists, too many curators were still prisoners of this fascination, of this illusion coming from the image itself.
0: That's really fascinating. And one of the key aspects of this is, for instance, in, in reference to the Cranach, Dieter Kirplin, who's a specialist in Cranach, he originally authenticated it. And then when he saw macro photographs, that was the point when he revised his opinion. So what you're saying, in a sense, is that this speed of judgment, which, is, as you say, can be based on a, on, a, on a very quick viewing, is completely counterproductive, because it doesn't take into account very detailed scientific evidence which we are now able to gather in lots of in lots of these cases it's the scientific evidence that's disproved it right so modern technologies versus old school connoisseurship as you say
2: yes and one problem that you also had is that these people do not communicate so uh, in some cases Christie's had rejected paintings that Sotheby's sold afterwards and they had as you know, big problems about that, and even lawsuits and, uh, you know, very costly procedures. And that they didn't know that Christie's before had rejected the works. In the case of Kerplin, uh, I was the one who gave him the macro coming from a, another lab in Paris. But he didn't know that, the, you know, they existed. And when I sent them to him, and I send them also to uh, Gunnar Eidenrash, uh, with the great specialist of Kranach, both said, OK, it's not possible that it would be by Kranach. Uh, it's, it's, and they both said, it's a modern forgery, it's a fake. They refuted it. Uh, when um, you have a look at the image, it's like when you go in an exhibition. I mean, we, we are all captivated by the image, by a beautiful image, in, in a magazine, in the advert, in a museum, in, in a gallery. Uh, when you see the image, it looks fine. But for instance, Kranach used to paint the eyelashes one by one. And this, you can only see that with a microscope. And in this case, uh, the so-called Kranach owned by the Prince of Liechtenstein, uh, the eyelashes were painted with just a brush stroke. So for them, it was obvious that Kranach would have never done that. Uh, When the the way analysis of the pigment one done by a, a, a very good expert in London called Libby Sheldon, at the request of Christie's actually, she said there was a pigment made of tin and lead, yellow, which have never appeared in Kranach workshop, and uh, which has not a very good result, actually, and uh, not a very good uh, appearance. And it's also because you make this work, you can understand that it can be a forgery. But if you don't do it, well, then you can be in big trouble.
0: Let's talk about the lawsuit that you mentioned, which involved Sotheby's and a Franz Howes painting. So it was a a Franz Howes painting that was sold in a private sale by Sotheby's. It's been settled out of court now, but can you say something about that story? Because it was really important, wasn't it, in the end, because what happened was Sotheby's then set about disproving its authenticity as a pro- as part of this process which so you had an auction house which had sold a work then going back in and doing the provenance after the yeah. fact as it were yes
2: the the story of the so-called Hals portrait uh is is amazing first it it was proposed by Giuliano ruffini through christie's to the louvre and the louvre said it's a masterwork we want to buy it for five million euros They could not collect the money. And then it was bought by the British dealer Mark Weiss, and someone who was a friend of him and a client and also an investor had a a sort of financial company, which he even lended the money to Mark Weiss to pay half of his share. And um, his name is David Kovitz. Then it was sold through Sosby's to a very big collector in Seattle for $11 million. When I understood that Giuliano Ruffini was a really problematic dealer, I went and contacted Sotheby's in Paris and told them, I know that you have sold several paintings. It was not the only one coming from him. And the guy is a problem. So they contacted their clients, and took the paintings back, uh, gave them to a lab, you know, Jamie Martin's lab in Williamstown, and Jamie Martin found under the paint a pigment, a modern pigment called phthalocyanin, a blue or green pigment, which did not exist before the 20th century. So how did it get there was another problem. There was a long discussion about that. But the fact is that it was obviously a forgery. So then Sosby's decided to refund this very important client at once, <laughs> good company's relationship with the clients, and asked to Mark Weiss and to David Kovitz to be refunded from their own part of the benefit. And at first they refused. Mark Weiss uh, settled out of court uh, for, uh, you know, something around $4 million. So uh, even more than the benefit that he had had from the sale. And uh, David Kovitz was really the main victim in this at the end of the chain. Because he said, no, I'm, I'm not reimbursing Sosby's Sosbys decided to refund this client. This is not my problem. I'm not obliged by the contract law to pay back my benefit and he refused to do this for a matter of principle, mostly, I think. So they went to court and he lost the case and he lost the case again in in the appeal. So he lost a lot of money, a lot of legal fees, uh, legal costs. And, um, and the benefits, and he uh, had out uh, from the sale, and uh, it was really a sad story, I think, because mostly he's a collector, and he did this because he, he loved art, and he had this very special relationship with Mark Weiss, very friendly relationship with Mark Weiss, and he trusted Mark Weiss, and um, he, he was very hurt by all this, I think.
0: The key thing to stress about this is that is that the people who have admired and authenticated these objects are at the absolute top of the pyramid of art historians, for instance. So there was a narrazio Gentileschi painting on lapis, which was included in a National Gallery exhibition mm. in London in 2014, I think it was, and it was called Making Colour. And it was talked about on a podcast by the national Gallery's curator at the time and you know as this extraordinary and rare and strange and wonderful object you know you know in each of these objects you've got a louvre curator being very effusive with praise about the franz house for instance so this is not just a sort of private connections and private authentications and private appreciations by by a collector and dealer world we're talking about the top art historians aren't we
2: yes that, that's the other problem which is raised in the book is that you've had paintings which were exhibited or recognized by museums like the Louvre, the National Gallery in London, as you said, the Metropolitan in New York, uh, the Kunsthistorische Museum in in Vienna, and these people, they did not admit it that they must have made a mistake at one point. And that's a big problem for me. If you go back to the Hals history, at the time, the author of the catalogue, raisonné had only seen the Hals on a black and white photography, which was very bad, very bad quality. You could not even see the signature, because there's a signature on a, a monogram on the painting. And he said, oh, it, it, this must be a new wonderful discovery of a portrait by Hals. And he had never seen the painting itself. And he was the specialist of Hals, And he was almost 90 at the time. And in a letter he sent to the Louvre curator, he said, well, my eyes are betraying me now. So this is very bad photography. I can hardly see it. But I can tell you, this must be a, a great discovery of Hals." The story was repeated and repeated and repeated from one dealer to another dealer, to another dealer, to Sotheby's, to to the collector who bought it, as this specialist has admitted it as a masterwork by von And it's amazing how the expertise, or the so-called expertise, is being built. In the case of the Gentileschi, uh, when Letizia Treves arrived at the National Gallery, her first objective was to exhibit This so-called Gentileski, it's an exquisite work. It's very well done, very well done.
0: I've seen it. It's a beautiful thing. It's
2: an extraordinary thing. And it was bought by the same collector, uh, David Kovitz. And she pressed David Kovitz to lend it to the National Gallery. She insisted. She was calling him each week, if not each day. When the painting was withdrawn from the gallery and the scandal erupted that maybe all the paintings sold by Ruffini were fakes, or at least a large number of them, David Kovitz had no news from her. Uh, the, The National Gallery, she didn't say, or the National Gallery didn't say, we have a lab, maybe we should examine this painting maybe we should go back on its history. So not only they exhibited the painting without any examination, without any proper due diligence on the provenance or whatever, but when the story erupted, they gave back the story to the collector and they did not propose that the National Gallery could study the case, so to correct a mistake if they had made a mistake. And dealers sometimes are more diligent in accepting their own mistakes, maybe because it's part of the job, maybe because it's their own money and their own image and reputation. But I find uh, terrible that these institutions do not accept to come back on the story, on on the analysis of these paintings, and try to leave something for the next generations, it's it's sort of debate of art history. And they should take their responsibility. They should take their responsibility towards the, the public. They had legitimized these forgeries, if there are forgeries. And there's no room for self-criticism there. And I think that's a sort of, institutional pride or something like that which is very harmful for art history and for the general education of the audience.
0: There are lots of cases of course but, but I wanted to ask a bit about who is the forger? If, if these are forgeries who is this painter or are there multiple painters?
2: So you know there is a French criminal investigation which started a couple of years ago. They suspect that there are several painters. The, apparently There is a great difference of making in the first period of the Flamish paintings, for instance. And uh, they they have two or three names of possible painters, of suspects. But for the masterworks, which were sold for millions of euros or dollars or pounds, the main suspect is named Frangia. So he's a painter who lives in northern Italy, not far from uh, where Ruffini lives. Uh, they became friends apparently through the sort of cultural minister of Berlusconi named Vittorius Garbi, who is a very strange guy. There's I wrote a portrait of him in the book. He's a very, very strange and very suspicious guy. And the French police suspects Lino Frangia to be the author of these masterworks, uh, signed Fransals, Cranach, Gentileschi, even Velasquez. That was a sort of challenge that they didn't succeed. (laughs) And and many others by uh, Renaissance, Italian Renaissance painters, for instance.
0: And this isn't over by any stretch, is it, Vincent? This is very much an ongoing investigation.
2: Yeah, this is an ongoing investigation. Not only the criminal investigation is still, you know, going on, but we still find paintings today. The last one being a so-called Bonzino, which was found, in, uh, f- lent by a famous uh, American collection called Alana. And uh, it was seized last year in, uh, in the Parisian Museum. And uh, it's like the Beltrachi case you will find other paintings like this. You and you know, and this is one reason why we should really work on this, you know, on the forensic analysis and try to understand what was the process which led to this big failure of the art market.
0: Well Vincent, thank you so much for telling us about it.
2: Thank you. We
0: reached out to the National Gallery for comment on Vincent's statements on the Orazio Gentileschi, but were told that the museum had nothing to add to a statement it released at the time it was reported. That statement said, The gallery always undertakes due diligence research on a work coming on loan, as well as a technical examination. And we also put Vincent's claims to Conrad Bernheimer, who sent us this statement. The provenance from a Belgian family came to us in a very convincing way through the young man who was acting on behalf of the elderly Belgian gentleman whose family had owned the painting for several generations. This was confirmed to us several times. We did do, quote, our homework, end quote, including that the provenance was also confirmed to us by an official Belgian notary. It is simply not true that anyone from Colnaghi or myself quote, invented the Belgian provenance to facilitate the export licence. Vincent Nossi's La Faire Ruffini is out now, published by Boucher-Chastel and priced €12.99. It's currently only available in French. You can read more on the various stories we discussed at theartnewspaper.com or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, the artist Collier Shaw tells us about August Sander's young soldier, Vesterwald, which is in various collections, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. You can see an image of the work on our website. Click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Collier, you've chosen to talk about um, an extraordinary work by August Sander. Why this particular image, though?
3: I guess because I was thinking about works I had seen in public collections which is museums and you know obviously living in New York I've seen so many and it made me think like what's owned by museums that I see and how uh, you know as an artist that that's a there's a certain weight to that when you when you look at labels and you get all this information and I was remembering the August Sanders show at the Met and the reason I looked at the labels was because I noticed one label of a Nazi soldier, German soldier, and it had a kind of almost like a caution, a caution note, uh, like you might see for pornographic images um, or violent images. But this was just a caution, you are looking at a Nazi, and that might be disturbing. And it was really intense because I had been working in Germany for a lot of years and making pictures of fake Nazis and looking at August Sander and, and the kind of, my impulse to shoot in Germany was that I was showing at 303 Gallery and that was the gallery that showed Andreas Gursky and Thomas Roof. So my first sort of modern understanding of Germany was through the Dusseldorf School of Photographers. And when I went to Germany, because I started to date someone, the Germany I found felt different. And I knew that August Sander was an important factor in Düsseldorf and in terms of genre photography. And I noticed that all the Germans avoided the Nazis. You know. So they, they copied sort of everything from August Sander's work, the architecture, the landscapes, the portraits, uh, the family, the group shot. And they just completely left out World War II. And so I thought, well, I'll make the work that Germans would make if they were American. And, and I started from that place. And I looked at Sander pictures and I, I looked at them for the uniforms. I made contact with a, a theater company in Berlin who rented me uniforms. And so the, f- the funny thing about that was that they would inadvertently tell me the status of the soldier picture that I was looking at. And there's... There's one case, it's not this picture, but um, another picture where I was describing the outfit because in those days, I don't even think I had a cell phone to send a picture. And the person said, Oh, yeah, that's Hitler's private guard. And so that picture became a kind of, you know, inspired a whole other type of um, idea for me, which was, you know, if I made a picture of Hitler's guard and I had that person doing a certain activity, that I could somehow infiltrate. Hitler's bunker. Anyway, just to circle back to the picture, it was like seeing my work in the met and being cautioned about it.
0: Just going back to your work, there's that work which features a figure called Andreas. It's all part of this forests and fields series, right? So this is in in Schwäbisch Gmünd, which is this town that you've returned to year after year right and in this work with andreas he is probably about the same age as the soldier in sanders photograph right and and it seems to me that that's a terrifically powerful sort of relationship between your work and sanders in the sense that these are humans and they're in very different contexts yes they might be wearing the same uniform but we're looking at you know that separation between the two images is is very profound as well
3: right there's a couple of of German guys that that posed in uniforms because you can't just have one, you know, you got to build an army. And um, Andreas was one, Horst was another, Stefan was another, Herbert was another. Um, The picture that's very much like the um, younger soldat that we're talking about is this kid Horst who was my nephew at the time. And um, He was the first person I photographed in Germany. That was the first work. And that's the work that's showing at KOW uh, Cow in Berlin. And I looked up that picture and then I had a recollection of shooting Horst years later from what, you know, I first shot him when he was 13 wearing lipstick and, and posing, you know in his grandfather's garden. And when I shot him again, he was in the army doing his, his service. So I kind of worked off of that picture from Sander with Horst in his own uniform, which naturally happened in the body of work because some of these kids, Herbert and Stefan and Horst all went into the army. So at the point I was shooting them in both fake uniforms and their own uniform. And I was watching them um, go through the process of fantasy about what being a soldier is to the reality of being a soldier and having kind of inhabited the psychic space of soldiers from the past because all these boys had put on essentially their grandfather's uniforms
0: tell us about the kind of qualities of sanders photographs from a sort of formal perspective do you because you know there's this famous tone you know, the famous contrast, is that something that you've responded to too? Because it's not a given necessarily that the formal properties are going to be part of a consideration.
3: It's German, it's the, you know, the facade of the emotion of the photo. It's the, the distance between the person and the camera. And that's a mainstay of German work. And that's why, you know, on some level my work was never really accepted in Germany. It was, it was too human, it was too messy, it was too imperfect, it was too romantic, you know, it was too seduced by its landscape, um, it was too gay. Probably if it was just Jewish, it would be fine. Maybe it wasn't Jewish enough. Um, but I think, you know, for me going into that body of work was because I thought the Germany I saw was not like the work. The people were quirkier, softer, weirder. Um, stuff is old forever. You know, you can make pictures in and be in the seventies forever. You know, and you can think about terrorism in the seventies and not the forties because it's just stuck in that time period. And so, you know, I wanted to take pieces from that work or the idea of that work, but not to not to kind of fuse everyone together, but to say that there's a lot of difference and I have different relationships to different people. I'm closer and further away. Um, And I think that that felt important. It felt important to make work that accomplished what Sander did in terms of, you know, bringing in difference but also saying how I feel about it. I mean, the, the last picture in my book, well, the last couple of pictures, you know, say the last three pictures in, in Neighbors, the first volume of Forest and Fields, is my great nephew, Lucas, who was maybe two years old, born in Stuttgart, but wearing a Bavarian child's outfit. So he wasn't wearing the clothing from his region, And the picture after that was his great, great uncle, who was a concentration camp officer in Dachau and whose house I refused to go to until I decided I wanted to take a picture of the Nazi from my family. And so I suddenly accepted the invitation to go have sausage and cake and coffee. Everyone was very excited. And I was there as a hunter, as a Nazi hunter, you know, to take a picture of this guy. And my fantasy was to take it in his deathbed but they put him in a war chair. But I made pictures of my nephew holding hands with this guy. And, you know, I looked at him. I really looked at him. And I wanted him to recognize my face. And, and at the same time, I thought, this is so absurd. It's so, so absurd and insane. And history is so crazy. And, um, And as artists, we are just bound to manipulate. We just do, you know? So, you know, I'm going into Germany and I'm getting these costumes and I'm putting them on the street, which is illegal. And I'm dressing these boys in them. And each boy has a different relationship to being a Nazi. And there's one boy, Andreas, that's so beautiful. And um, I think Madonna owns a big picture of him. And she talked about it in Vogue once that the, the writer Hamish Bowles said, you know, what do people think of that picture? And she says, well, they think about it. And that's their, That's what it's there for. And Andreas would complain that he never got to be a Vietnam soldier, that he's always stuck in the Nazi uniform. Because there's a certain, you know, shame to that. And then another boy might be really curious and say, it's so helpful that we're trying on our history because it's kept for, from us. And so we don't really know it. And then another boy was afraid that I was making propaganda and I was a neo-Nazi. So, it, you know, all of those conversations create different expressions.
0: Which, and it returns us again to that first point that you made about the trigger warning, you know, next to the image. So did you see that as a sort of an affront? You said it sort of almost felt like a trigger warning about your own work. If you've gone and met that great uncle and you've actually stared this man in the face, it seems to me that can't all of us stare this Nazi in the face and confront our own humanity and its, its terrible flaws?
3: I mean, I did my due diligence. I did send his name to the Simon Wiesenthal Centre and it, they never wrote back, so I'm assuming whatever his business was, it wasn't uh, entirely brutal. Um, But I think, you know, my issue was, this is is the artist's work. This is Sanders' work and it's specific and it has all these things. And if you start going in and henpecking images and saying, oh, well, you might not want to look at this or this might not be suitable for children, you're not really showing the intentionality of the work. You know, which is to kind of say, this is the entire place and look at it you know, through one kind of standard technique of photography. You can't not be guilty. I mean, I would read Holocaust literature in Germany to make sure that I was very, very aware of how horrific you know, the material was that I was working with.
0: Collier, thank you so much for telling us about this amazing image.
3: And it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Collier Shaw's exhibition Day for Night 1992-2021 is at Modern Art at KOW in Berlin until the 23rd of April. That's it for this episode you can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions and do subscribe to this podcast and our other podcasts brush with if you haven't already done so and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it you can also find us on twitter at turn audio and on facebook and instagram of course the week in art is produced by julia Michalska, amy dawson and david clack and david also does the editing and sound design thanks to Xavier to Vincent and to Collier and thank you for listening see you next week bye for now The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766 auction private sales online art
3: any